just to uh, let you know a little more about me and my family, um, I may have come down too hard on the no pet rule. I'm probably, I'm probably more a cat man in the end. I just don't like cat hair and dog hair. I grew up, my parents were dog people. Dog people are strange. Um, my dogs almost had human rights in that household and I would just always be wearing a fur coat. Uh, and so once I got married, I was like, uh-uh, no pets, not and never. But um, my, my wife does like cats, so maybe I should come around. Uh, I'm, so I'm married to Naomi. Um, we went through youth group together. Sweet, isn't it? Uh, and then we got married when uh, we got married when we were 21. Uh, it, it, looking, it's 10 years next year, and looking at the wedding photos, it looks like we're both dressed in our parents' clothes. Uh, we look so young. So, um, and then uh, we have two kids. Um, Felix is two and a half. He's uh, great fun. Uh, he is not developing as fast as I like with his speech or his toilet training. Uh, but he can dance and dance well. Uh, so <laughs> he expresses himself in other ways and I'm okay with that. Uh, and then we have Estelle and Estelle is six months. She is beautiful. Uh, she's a, a sweet, smiley girl in the day and a monstrous, crazy woman at night. Uh, and so it, it softens the blow that she smiles in the day. Uh, but at night at the moment, uh, she's not sleeping amazingly. But she's lovely nonetheless. Um, if you open up to Acts 2, we're actually not going to unpack this text so much this morning. We're going to be looking at Ezekiel and John, but by way into this passage, uh, we, we kind of are opening up the Spirit who gives life. Uh, we will address uh, particularly, uh, if you had questions in your mind about uh, tongues and gifts, uh, that will be coming in the next session when we look at 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, so I'm not dodging that one, uh, but we will get there. Uh, there's, I think last night it was talked about a book called by Christopher Ash, um, remake, remaking a broken world. Is it? Uh, it's a, it's a great book, and just to set Acts two in context. So, in creation, God uh, creates man and woman in His own image, uh, and He He creates him to image him as as His His people gathered in, and He puts him in the garden, uh, and there they can enjoy the blessing of living under God's good rule. Uh, what we see in Genesis 3 is that they reject God's good rule. Uh, Satan, the, the devil, uh, gets them to doubt God's goodness and his good rule, uh, to doubt his word, uh, and they, they, they do that. And, and what happens is that they're scattered from the garden. They're, they're exiled from the garden uh, out into the world. And that, that was an act of, of judgment. Um, and then as, as you move through Genesis chapters 1 uh, through to chapter 11, uh, you see the nature of of spin spiralling down and down and down, getting worse and worse and worse. Uh, and, and, and the height of that, I mean, Noah's in there between, but just for brevity's sake, we'll swing through. Uh, but you get to uh, the, this account of, of uh, the Tower of Babel in, in Genesis 11. Um, and that's where all the peoples of the earth gather together and in a kind of a collected effort that... They're trying to usurp God's authority. Uh, they're, they're trying to, to show their own power uh, in rebellion against God by gathering together and, and, and expressing them, building this tower. Uh, so they've gathered together, but they've gathered together not under God. They've gathered together under their own uh, impressiveness, their own reasons, uh, their own glory. 
And what happens, we see there, is that God comes down in judgment. Uh, and it's this brilliant part in that narrative as you read it. Because it's literally, it's just talked about how these amazing kind of technological feats, these, these humans have built this tower to God. And then there's this point in the text where it just says, and God comes down. So for all their efforts in building these things, uh, it, it says nothing. It's pathetic to, to God. He comes down. Uh, and there he, he, in an act of judgment, uh, confuses them, uh, gives them different languages, and he scatters them. And so again, that act of judgment is being scattered. Uh, and then it looks like that is just judgment, but we turn uh, to the next chapter in Genesis 12, and we see that God makes a promise to Abraham, a promise involving a people, a land, and a blessing. And this is a promise, really, uh, of, of a people uh, through whom and by whom God will display his glory to the world. And what we see as we, as we trace through the rest of the Bible is the fulfilment of this, that God is gathering a people uh, for himself, uh, through whom and to whom he will, he, will, he will display his glory to the world. And so when we come to, to this account, because of Jesus' uh, death and, and resurrection, uh, to bring the forgiveness of sin, to overturn uh, those powers of, of evil, but also to, to make us in, in right relationship with God through a substitutionary death, we, we come to, to Acts 2 and, and this promise of the Holy Spirit comes. And what we see here is, is that everyone's gathered in this one place and uh, there's, a, there's a list of all the different nations that are there. And then the Spirit comes and descends and, and wacky things happen. Uh, but what, what we see there is that in the end, as, as Peter declares the Gospel, because what does Peter do? Well, he talks about Jesus. Uh, people are cut to the heart and they believe. Uh, and, and what we're seeing there is that the act of scattering is being reversed. Here we are, there's the people gathered and as they hear the Gospel word preached, uh, they come to repentance and faith and, and God gathers his people and he dwells not only among them like he did in the Old Testament, but he dwells in them through the Holy Spirit. Uh, here is his people. And as the, the chapter moves on, it, it's interesting, doesn't it, that it flows on from, to verse 42 where it describes the fellowship of the new believers. Uh, so this is what the new community of God's people look like. Uh, what are they doing? Well, they're doing pretty ordinary things. Uh, they're sharing life together they're, they're sharing a restored relationship with God and with one another. Uh, here is uh, where God is going to display his glory through and, and, and to the world uh, through his people, the church, as they gathered around uh, his word and they live lives shaped by the word. Um, and so that, that's just to put into kind of a very, very fast uh, context where, where we're up to uh, in this point in, in salvation history. Um, but can I commend that book to you? It's, um, it's a great read. Anything by Christopher Ashe is money. Uh, it's, 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 he's a very good thinker, particularly stuff on marriage as well. He's excellent. And I think he's done a paper on sexuality as well, which you can get off a website. Um, I think maybe the UCCF website as well. Get it. It's, 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 it's excellent. So if you open up to Acts 2 with me, uh, this morning we're looking at the Spirit who gives life. So, as we come to this chapter, we're introduced to a bloke, Peter. Uh, he's known, if you've read the Gospels, to be one for uh, a big mouth and a unique ability to make himself look really stupid through the Gospels. 
Uh, he's also known to be something of a coward who when the pressure was on, he'd, he'd buckle like a, a piece of tin in a furnace. And so there he is in a capital city with a hundred or so of his mates experiencing some pretty weird stuff in front of an audience of thousands of people. Understandably, they want to know what's going on. The stuff that happened is very weird. Some are accusing you of being a bunch of winos off your heads at only nine o'clock in the morning. Obviously, they have never lived in a student city. That is possible. Uh, I live on a student street. It wouldn't be such a bizarre experience. Uh, but anyway, then it was. Uh, so you begin to tell them. Before you know it, you're telling this large crowd that the very one you had tried to disown... You, sorry, you're telling this large crowd about the very one you had tried to disown not a few weeks before. Only then you had bottled in front of a servant guild. Now you're speaking in front of a multitude of people. But you don't pull any punches. You lay it on the line. You tell them straight. This Jesus who, who they killed was in fact God's servant, promised for hundreds of years and was not lost because God had raised him from the dead. But the man they had killed was in fact the man. And, and as he speaks this, it's, it's kind of fiery, it's risky rhetoric. Uh, the response of the mob could have easily been thrown into a lynching party, but instead, what do we see? Well, the Bible tells us that they were cut to the heart. They were convicted of what they had done. And they pleaded with, with, with Peter and his friends to help them deal with their terrible crime. And we read it in the end of that day, they threw their lot behind the very Jesus that they had killed not a few weeks before. Why is this the case? Was it because Peter had spoken eloquently? Well, they had responded because the Holy Spirit had done precisely what Jesus said he would do. He had convicted the crowd of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. Peter had been a faithful witness to Jesus for sure, but the Holy Spirit had done his work as the revealer, the witness par excellence. This was the paraclete in action, the Holy Spirit, the revealer. In parading Jesus before the eyes of the crowd and showing him to be all that Jesus claimed he was, the Holy Spirit had shown up their sin and brought them judgment and life. But that's not only what they went on to enjoy, was it? They began to experience life in the Spirit, life as it was meant to be experienced. And we see that in verses 42 onwards, a life in community, a life with others, a life of sharing where there is no need, a life of taking responsibility for one another, all in the context of a, res- a restored relationship with their maker. And so this morning we're going to continue our series on the Holy Spirit by looking at his role and function as life giver. This is not a separate work from the revealing Christ, Uh, It is not a separate work of his revealing um, uh, nature, but it is his revealing work as he gives life. And as we come to see Christ for who he was and make the necessary response of turning from our rejection of him and coming under his gracious rule among his people, so we come into life as it was intended to be. A life we were made to enjoy. So here's an interesting question for you uh, to think about this morning. What is life? What is life? 
not that easy to think about, is it? I mean, we can answer it kind of biologically in terms of uh, heartbeats or blood pumping and consciousness, but that's not really life, at least not the sum total of life. See, many people talk about existing, not living, about a spark missing or, or, or searching for something. Uh, they want to, to live life to its fullest, uh, life in the fast lane. And you see this as, as some people kind of dabble in kind of maybe extreme sports in alcohol and drugs, promotion, travel, um, sex, all kinds of experiences. And, and we as uh, millennials, have you ever heard that term? I squeeze in, 1981, I'm a millennial, sorry Pete, you're out of there bad boy. Uh, but uh, us millennials, experience is God, isn't it? Uh, at university, uh, it's not just the experiences of our time, but, but travel, um, getting, getting certain work and those kinds of things. They're, they're things that we wear as badges of honour. They're all avenues where, where people ha- have, have exhausted and, and tried to get this kind of elusive life. They've thrown themselves into these pursuits. And they promise so much, but they deliver so little. So the question remains, what is life? Where is it to be found? Well, turn with me to Ezekiel 37. I'm going to read to us from verses 1 to 13. Has anyone ever heard that old gospel song, Dry Bones? I saw the nod there. Purple Jumper, Gospel Choir. <laughs> you, you've heard the song, Dry Bones? Well, I initially thought I had, but then I think I was thinking the wrong thing. Okay. <laughs> I was going to get you up and you could do a little ditty for us, but uh, I'm not. But anyway, it's a great little gospel song, so if you go on Spotify or whatever, uh, go and type in Dry Bones, uh, and you'll see the parallels here. But let me read to us from Ezekiel 37, verses 1 to 14. The hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. He led me to and fro among them, and I saw great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied, and I was commanded, and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound, and the bones came together, bone by bone. I looked, and the tendons and the flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them. There was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds, and breathe into these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. And they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the Sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open your graves 
and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and bring you up from them. I will put my spirit in you and you will live and, you will, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. So at this point in time, the nation of Israel was in exile in Babylon. Uh, they were there because of the judgment of God. So if, you, if you're following that kind of gathering and scattering idea, uh, the fulfilment of, of God's promises looked like they were set to be fulfilled in the nation of Israel. Uh, there they were in, in God's place, uh, God's land, Israel, uh, living under a king but under his rule by his word uh, and seeking to be a blessing uh, and experiencing God's blessing. But here they are not in God's land. They've been scattered from God's land. They're in exile under judgment. They turned their backs on God and had suffered the consequences. This was the ultimate tragedy. They were strangers in a foreign land, slaves to a foreign superpower. Excluded from their own land, they felt abandoned and desolate. Their state of mind is summed up in in verse 11. They say, our bones are dried up, our hope is gone, we are cut off. But the Lord had not abandoned them. They were not rejected and forsaken. God had sent his servant Ezekiel with a message for them. And he placed him in a valley full of bones and dead men. And, and what's interesting is that it goes to great lengths to demonstrate how dead these dead bones actually were. Uh, the chapter emphasises to make sure we know that there is no resuscitation of people uh, who have passed out from the heat. Uh, these were dead people. This is a valley of bones. Just like Israel, they were beyond hope, at least ordinary hope. But God's spokesman, uh, spokesman in verses 4 to 6 is told to speak the word of the Lord over this valley of death. And as he does, the bones, they begin to move. Skeletons begin to form. Muscles and fibres begin to come together and connect. And, and flesh covers these frames. The one thing they lack is, is breath. And so this, the prophet has to prophesy once more what happens. The, the great multitude come together like a great massive army. A massive army is formed. And then the Lord explains this rather strange occurrence in verses 11 to 14. When he breathes in them, all hope is not lost. The people return from exile and they'll once again be his people. But the great climax, the turnaround in fortunes, is found in verse 10 and 14. It says, So I, I prophesied as he commanded me, the breath entered them and they came to life and they stood up on their feet, a vast army. And in 14, I'll put my spirit in you and you will live. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, that I have done it, declares the Lord. So the spirit of God was the moment of life here. A valley full of in a, in, like a dead bodies was no more use than a valley full of, full of bones. It, it was the breath of God to animate and to energise uh, these bodies. And this is, it, it's a spirit who brings life. And this is a consistent biblical focus. So if you were to turn with me to uh, Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, the creation account, in verse 2, we read, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And in the Old Testament, this word, word hovering occurs twice or more. Uh, in one of those, it's, it's translated formless. So the earth was formless and empty 
and darkness was hovering over the waters. Uh, it's similar when, when uh, God is describing um, Israel being brought out of Egypt, liber- liberated by grace and fashioned into God's people. In Deuteronomy 32, 10 and 11 it says, In a desert land he found them, in a howling waste of wilderness he shielded them and cared for them. He guarded them as an apple to his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and hovers over its young, and it spreads its wings to catch them and carries them on its pinions. But then if you were to follow to Genesis 2.7, it says, The Lord formed the man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and that man became a living being. There is no life without the Spirit of God. Uh, In Psalm 104 verses 29 and 30 it says, When you hide your face, they are terrified. When they take away your breath, they die and return to dust. When you send your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the earth. Or if we look at how the spirit brings life, particularly in the New Testament, if we turn to to Luke chapter 1, I just speak about the incarnation, uh, when Jesus uh, began his life in ministry. God speaks these words, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you so the Holy One will be born and will be called the Son of God. See, the Spirit is present and active in the conception of Jesus, the Messiah. So just as without the Spirit there would be no creation, uh, so without the Spirit there would be no incarnation when God would become man. And in John 20, verses 21 to 23, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you And with that he breathed on them. Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. And so the big point as we kind of move through these scriptures is that just as the Spirit of God was essential to life of the first creation, so the Spirit of God is essential to life in the new creation, new creation in Christ. God breathes his life into an old humanity in Adam and now Jesus breathes his life into a new humanity in Christ. Now the purpose of looking, uh, behind looking into these texts is to show how the Bible puts it, how it presents it. There is no life as it was intended to be without the Spirit of God. There is no life as it was intended to be without the Spirit of God. People often talk about, uh, and there's usually a book a year about um, near-death experience. Uh, it's a whole genre, really. Now, recounting those experiences of, of being on the brink of death, only to be, to be brought back at that last moment. But in Ezekiel, we see that this was no near-death experience. It was total death. It was not simply that their, their heart had stopped beating, for a few moments and their brainwaves ceased. They had died. They had decomposed, leaving only bones behind. They were as dead as they could possibly be. They knew themselves to be dead. They were cut off from the living presence of God. They themselves said they were without hope. Now I think what we need to draw the parallel is is that this is the spiritual condition of all of us. Pete helpfully read, as he started yesterday, uh, from Ephesians Chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 1, we read, As for you, you were dead. You were dead 
in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. We were dead. We were cut off from the presence of the living God. Make no mistake, we were dead. Subjectively, we may not have felt dead. You may not have even been aware that you were dead, but objectively, the Bible calls us equally dead no matter how we feel. There is no life as it was intended to be without the Spirit of God. In fact, it is His presence that defines life. Where the Spirit is, that's where life is. Without the Spirit, there is only existence. And so, as we read through, continuing with Ephesians 2, we read these glorious truths, though, don't we? In verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. But, it starts with... Now, can I, just, can I just draw your attention to that but, please? That's a big but. It's a gloriously big but. There's a lot of gloriously big buts, pun intended, uh, in Scripture. And whenever you see them in the New Testament, they're glorious things, and so we should highlight them... Uh, This is a big but that you should look at a lot. Um, But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, he made us alive in Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. We were dead, it says, but God made us alive. We will never experience this in its fullness and wonder if we don't appreciate how dead we actually were. We were as Israel was, a valley of dry bones. We were dead in our sins and transgressions, but God has made us alive. And Jesus makes this clear uh, in his kind of nocturnal rendezvous with Nicodemus, the religious leader in John 3. If you want to turn there with me to John 3. And in verses 5 to 8, it reads this, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised by saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. See, see, the miracle that we were just talking about of being made alive is virtually the same as, as what Jesus calls new birth in John 3. Once we had no spiritual life, but then God raised us from that state of spiritual deadness and now we are alive. This is the same as Jesus saying that we must be born again. This is the Spirit. And in John 6, 63, it says, The Spirit who gives life. It is not something you can do yourself. It is something that happens to you. It happens to us, not by us. I think that's important to focus on. This life is given by the Spirit. It happens to us, not by us. But as we saw in last night's talk, the Spirit reveals Jesus. Jesus himself is the life the Holy Spirit gives the spiritual life he gives. He only gives in connection with Jesus and what he has done for us in his death, resurrection and ascension. 
See, union with Jesus is where we experience this supernatural, spirit-filled life. Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. John 14, 6. We experience this union by faith in Jesus. And this is the Spirit's working. Let me read to you from the Scots Confession of 1560, uh, of which John Knox uh, was one of the four authors. This is how they phrase it. Our faith and its assurance do not proceed from flesh and blood, that is to say from natural powers within us, but they are the inspiration of the Holy Ghost who sanctifies us and brings us into all truth by his own working, without whom we should remain forever enemies of God and ignorant of his Son, Jesus Christ. For by nature we are so dead, blind and perverse that neither can we feel it when we are pricked or see the light when it shines nor assent to the will of God when it was revealed unless the Spirit of the Lord quickens that which is dead, removes the darkness from our minds and bow our stubborn hearts to the obedience of his blessed will. I love that. Now, you know, I'm the first to admit that's a bit wordy, but by our nature we were so dead, blind and perverse that neither could we feel it when we were pricked, see the light when it shines, nor assent to the will of God when it is revealed, unless the Spirit of the Lord Jesus quickens that which is dead, removes the darkness from our minds and bow our stubborn hearts to the obedience of his blessed will. This is glorious truth about the Spirit's work who, who brings life. He reveals Christ so that we have life. Well, what are some of the implications from this? Well, it will either disappoint or encourage you to learn that there is only one real implication I want to dwell on, namely the the indispensable nature of the Spirit's work. And the primary reason for us concentrating on this aspect is that it's a truth that, that humbles us, doesn't it? And it increases our dependency upon God. So the first one is there, is, there is no life without the Holy Spirit. In our natural state, we are insensitive and incapable. We are dead and dormant. We have no life in us than these reformed corpses in the Valley of Bones. Where do we get our awareness to God, the sensitivity to his glory? The Holy Spirit. Who is it that awakens our sense of need and an appreciation of a saviour? The Holy Spirit. Who brings eternity to our minds and our hearts? Who alerts us to the reality of the true nature of sin? Who gives repentance and saving faith? It's the Holy Spirit. So where then is there any ground for, for, for basis of, of kind of moral superiority or achievement? What separates a Christian from a non-Christian? Well, it's nothing we do, is it? It's happened to us. It's the sovereign and saving supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't matter how smart you are or how good you are because there is no life in us, neither is there any good in us apart from that which the Holy Spirit brings. Is that not a humbling truth for us? Does that not elevate God and rightfully diminish us? This is precisely why why we must dwell on it. We must have a sense of our own unworthiness and a sense of God's glory. It will impact the way that we relate to others. 
It will improve our ability to and increase our desire to reach those and the rest that, that society despises. Why? Because we, we, we should be rightfully despised. There but for the grace of God, there but for the Spirit of God, goes each and every one of us. And my second implication is there is life with the Holy Spirit. The life he gives is a life as it was meant to be lived. Uh, this, is, this is life in God when he speaks about his life in his kingdom that is under his good rule. So that, that good rule that was rejected all the way in, in Genesis 1 to 3. Uh, God now in Christ calls us to live under his good rule and we can through the Spirit. Uh, it's, it's a life suited to a, a new age and a new regime. It's a life of, of new affections, of new ambitions, of new desires, new relationships, new energies, new abilities, new perspectives and new possibilities. Uh, we are born anew into a life, a new life that stretches out beyond the horizons of just this world, but into to the opening and, and rolling, endless, breathtaking expanse of eternity. This is life as it was meant to be, to be lived. Without him there is no living, there is only existence. So can I encourage you, if you're a Christian, live the life. And if you're not a Christian, your response to that question will indicate whether or not you may have already begun that, that, that Holy Spirit's life-giving work in you. And what we'll be moving on, and particularly in, in the fourth session, we'll be looking at how the Holy Spirit transforms us to live life as it was truly meant to be lived by the Spirit. See, one of the, the works of the Spirit is to make us more human. Uh, whenever we, we describe something, it's fascinating, isn't it, when we, when we talk with people and we want to uh, you know, highlight a way we may have stuffed up, we say, well, I'm, on, I'm only human. Uh, our humanness is defined by our fallenness. Whereas, when we, when we read the Bible, well, who was the true human? Well, it was Jesus. So as when the Spirit works within us to become more like Jesus, we're actually becoming more truly human. We're living life as it was intended to be, and that is only the Spirit's work. And we'll read about those glorious, or sorry, we'll hear about those glorious truths in, in session four. But just a quick point, I wanted to try and hit off a few questions that may come up along the way or a few ambiguities that, that are often kind of raised when we think about the Holy Spirit. And so I just wanted to have a quick note on blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because uh, this can be a real concern for some people. If you turn to uh, Matthew twelve thirty-two. Uh, it reads here, Matthew twelve thirty two. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So this is sometimes called the, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and it's in all of the Gospels, or sorry, three of the Gospels, so in Mark three twenty nine and Luke twelve ten. And I, I remember as a kid really struggling with this, you know, freaking out that maybe unbeknownst to me that I had 
committed a sin against the Holy Spirit, which would mean that this life which is from us would somehow be not mine anymore. Uh, and it's an anxiety for a lot of people. Um, so it's important that we kind of think about, well, what is this sin against the Holy Spirit, this blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, this unforgivable sin? Um, well, in the context, it was to say, so Jesus had just been healing people and the, the Pharisees or the leaders of the time basically said that these healings were not done by the Spirit of God but rather by Satan. Or to put it another way, it was ascribing Jesus' healing power to Satan and that is basically the same as slandering the Holy Spirit. Uh, and this, we can see, can stem into an attitude of God which becomes fixed and only leads to kind of a never-ending darkness. So it's attributing that which is good and done by the Spirit to that of the devil in this scenario, particularly the healing. But it, it stems from a more fixed, um, a fixed disposition against God uh, and it overflows in this way. And the question is, well, can that be committed today? Can we do the same thing? Well, I think... The way to understand it is it is the sin of an outsider who refuses to come inside to the Father's house to which Jesus is, is the way. So in John 14 it says Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. Uh, so it is that the sin against the Holy Spirit is the sin against refusing to accept the Holy Spirit's testimony about who Jesus is. Uh, or it may be more resolute. It might be saying that the work of the Spirit in, in making Christ known to us uh, is, is not a good work. Uh, it's rejecting that truth. And so there's, there's an old answer to it, which is actually quite a helpful one. So for people who kind of freak out that they've committed this unforgivable sin, well, if you're freaking out about committing this unforgivable sin, well, you probably haven't committed the unforgivable sin. Uh, it, it's not bad advice, um, but what it is here, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit seems to be uh, a kind of a resolute um, rejection of the Holy Spirit's testimony to who Jesus is and what he has done. It's, a, it's describing the good work that Jesus has done, uh, either, either rejecting it by dismissing it or ascribing it to the work of the devil. Uh, so I'll try and hit off a few of these questions along the way. Uh, but I think that the big point is that the Spirit brings life. Uh, we were dead and we are made alive. And how does the Spirit do that? Well, He reveals to us Christ, what He has done for us in His person, His life, His teaching, His death on our behalf, His resurrection and ascension. The Spirit brings that work to life so that we can have life as it was meant to be as God's people. Uh, let me pray for us. Our Lord, we thank you uh, for the ways in which you have worked throughout history to gather a people for yourself. Our Lord, a people who, apart from your work, uh, your love, your life-giving, are dead. Uh, we saw that in the people of Israel, Lord. And this morning we recognise humbly our state as dead uh, before you in our transgressions and sins. Uh, we thank you for your grace. Uh, we thank you for your, your love, uh, the extension of your mercy in sending Jesus to die in our place uh, for our sin. 
Uh, Lord, we thank you that he rose victorious from the grave, overturning sin. And we thank you for your spirit, Father, that it applies that work to our lives. Lord, that you give us life. Now, Lord, we pray that we might truly live, Father, that, that these glorious truths might humble us so that we can recognise our own uh, bankruptcy before you. Uh, they might humble us so that we can turn outward in love to those the world despises and to speak of hope. Uh, Lord, and we pray that uh, it might again uh, woo us to see how glorious you are. Uh, what you have done for us, that you are such a worthy object of our affections, Lord, uh, of our whole beings, uh, and that we would turn to you uh, in worship in, in, in all of our lives as we seek to live by the Spirit. Uh, in Jesus' name, Amen.